Hello and welcome to the Slugger Politics Plus podcast. In this episode, we are looking at the State of the State report published by Deloitte. And we have two people behind this report, uh, particularly focusing on the Northern Ireland section, Mr. Ed Roddus, who is the head of public sector research for Deloitte, and Marie Doyle, who is Deloitte's Northern Ireland public sector director. Both of you are very welcome to the Slugger Politics Plus podcast. Thanks for having us, David. Okay, I want to start off with there's so much to go through because you guys have been surveying kind of pandemic attitudes. You've been looking at uh, at how things go. So I just want to start off with Ed. For anyone who hasn't been looking at the State of the State report or doesn't totally know what it is, Ed, if you could just kick us off with a bit of a quick synopsis about what is the State of the State report and why do numbers, nerds and policy nerds like me find it (laughs) so fascinating? Sure. So the State of the State is our attempt to create an annual snapshot of what's happening across government and public services across the whole of the UK, including in Northern Ireland. And what we do is bolt together two different bits of research. So on the quantitative side, we get Ipsos Mori to do a big survey for us, nice big sample size, so we can report with confidence on what's happening in Northern Ireland. That's a citizen survey about public attitudes to public spending and issues to do with the public sector. And then the other bit of research that we bolt into that is the qualitative side. And we get that by interviewing a whole bunch of public sector leaders, including people here in Northern Ireland, people like senior civil servants, police leaders, people in the NHS. Put those two things together, it gives us the state of the state. Okay, and it's uh, it's a fascinating um, snapshot, and you actually delve into the different regions and you know and and different attitudes. Marie, obviously from a Northern Ireland perspective, you know it it does give. You, we don't often get that kind of in depth, you know, interviews with senior policymakers and you know business leaders and you know um, you know uh, politicians as well. So from a Northern Ireland perspective, uh, as you view it. How, um, how, how is the report generally received and how do you find the report contributes to the wider you know, public policy debate that goes on in Northern Ireland? So I think, David, the first thing I'd say is we get great buy-in and great support from public sector leaders and indeed leaders across uh, business groups as well in Northern Ireland to state of the state in the interviews that we do. So every year we interview a wide cross-section of public sector and business leaders in Northern Ireland for state of the state and indeed possibly a greater representation of those leaders than any other part of the UK um, in Northern Ireland. And we find that those interviews are very open interviews. I think those leaders enjoy the opportunity to reflect on the state of the state, if you like. And then when the findings come out, I do think again that um, the leaders and the teams and the management and staff who work in our public sector also really like the opportunity again to reflect around things like COVID and what the impact of COVID-19 has been on our public sector and future of work and digital transformation. What is our transformation priority? So I think really well received and we're really grateful indeed for the contributions we get in Northern Ireland. I think people find it people find it cathartic, David, to have this conversation. It's it's amazing how many of the interviews we do, and people say, "Oh, I feel much better after that." You know, it's it's a good opportunity for people to to, to share their take, and it it gives it's, it's what gives the report its colour and its humanity. I think. 
Yeah, because you guys, and you'll be able to, for anyone uh, who's listening to this in the in the bio at the bottom and on the post, you'll be able to click through and actually read the most recent edition of the report. Um, you know, you were talking about uh, it being cathartic there, Ed. Obviously, you guys take snippets and quotes and, and put things um, up there in, 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 in lights and... You know, obviously, one of the things that um, that we've been talking about and we've been focusing on over the last 19 months has been the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, your report does highlight, obviously, Northern Ireland, you know, uh, public services are a big issue. And one thing that I did note uh, that you guys uh, picked out in the report was you talked about how the scale of the COVID-19 response has squeezed the public sector's bandwidth with countless consequences. And we're actually, as we record, uh, seeing some of that happening within the health service, the education service, and uh, other other aspects of the public service. Um, uh, and you, you, you noted that there were pre-existing issues in the system that have not been addressed and transformation programs that have been shelved. So I wanna ask uh, you first, Emery, if you can kick us off with this. Um, what are the main, what are these challenges facing the public sector in Northern Ireland? And what are the main things on the to-do list in terms of transformation? So um, I think you're right, David. COVID-19 has played havoc with normal public sector operations, no different in Northern Ireland as to anywhere else in the world. And I think really important to reflect, there was no rule book on managing COVID-19 and navigating COVID-19. And I think we need to we need to reflect on that when, when we talk about how public sector has um, performed during the last two years or so. Um, but you're right, we are in a fairly difficult space. And I think our interviews in Northern Ireland reflect and acknowledge that, that there is transformation priorities. There are issues across public sector in Northern Ireland that to be fair, we've long known are in need of transformation. Um, I think all of our interviewees talked to us this year about health transformation. And yes, I think you're absolutely right. COVID-19 just highlighted the structural issues in health. It, it isn't the only issue that's facing health. You know, we have a system that is probably one of the, the most funded systems, certainly in the UK, per head of population. But if we look at our waiting lists, for instance, I mean, they are the worst in the UK. So we're not getting the outcomes that we would expect to get for the type of health service we have. So there are structural issues, and I think that's well understood across our public sector. And I think we will see, and certainly the indicators we got from our, our, our interviews this year are that we will see a prioritization of health transformation in the time ahead. We are hopeful and our leaders, our public sector leaders are hopeful that we're going to get a multi-annual budget for the first time probably in seven years now in Northern Ireland. And there will be a need to invest in and transform healthcare and indeed social care. And of course we do have an integrated system in Northern Ireland. So in many ways we should be able to do that more effectively than perhaps other parts of the UK. So I think health is absolutely a priority and we're likely to see that um maintained and reinforced as we go through and certainly into the next general elect or sorry the next local election but there's others you've touched on education and and in the week that we're having it and the COVID pressures on our education system 
you know, education uh, reformation is, is is a priority as well. And we heard that talked about. We talk, we heard about investment needed in our wastewater infrastructure, investment needed in digital transformation across the whole of the public sector. Indeed, transformation were fundamentally off the administration of public sector in Northern Ireland. We had public sector leaders talk to us about skills deficits, particularly around digital. Um, you know, they're relying on too few people to do these transformation programs that need delivered. So no matter where you look or who you talk to, I think in public sector, there is an energy and an appetite to transform. I think the challenge will be how do we fund that and how do we resource that going forward? Yeah, and absolutely. And, and the policy agenda, I mean, Ed, it just seems to be getting you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, for any for any of you keeping score, the executive currently has 17 bills to try and get passed before the end of March. No mean feat. Um, but the policy issues do seem to be uh, stacking up and up and up there, as, as Marie is talking about. What, what, what are you getting? Because the great thing about, about you, Ed, is that you do this research across the UK. So what is it you are seeing, particularly for Northern Ireland, that maybe is chiming on those, the, the, you know, with COVID issues across the UK? Well, do you know what you, you mentioned in, in your question to Marie about bandwidth? And that's a massive issue right now because the, the public sector's bandwidth is finite. And what, what we've seen um, in the interviews this year is that people are tired as well. So across the piece, across the public sector, not just the public sector, the private sector as well. We've had 21 months of this pandemic and people in the public sector have been hard at it, firefighting, dealing with this thing. And, and they're, 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 pretty, uh, they're pretty low at the minute. And that doesn't help deal with all the transformation things that have started to pick up. And I think there are a couple of specifics to add into here as well. I mean, Northern Ireland Civil Service... Part of its transformation agenda is dealing with its its uh, ageing workforce. You know, they've got quite a, an old workforce in the Northern Ireland Civil Service. That's an issue. Uh, and then another part of it is how to seize the opportunities that are around at the moment. Because it, it, what, what fascinates me about the legacy of this pandemic is when we talked to people last year, last summer, they were saying, oh, the public sector, we've been more agile, we've been able to make decisions quicker, we've been able to surge forward on digital transformation because of the context we were operating in. This year, when we had those conversations, that, that context has changed a bit. I mean, the digital transformation has slowed down. And that, that sense of agility, it's, it's kind of remaining, but there's been a snapback to kind of normal ways of operating as well. So part of the challenge across the public sector is how do you lock in those new ways of working, those things that, that you know, slight positive legacies to come out of this, this horrific pandemic, how do you lock in those new ways of working and treat them as an opportunity to come out of it? And that's something that we picked up in our interviews as well. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we all, we often hear that term. It's probably been overdone. It's, you know, build back better. You know, is the is the term. I know it's been uh, largely co-opted by President Biden in the <laughs> United States um, uh, as well. But 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 as we talk about building back better and new ideas and new initiatives, um, something that isn't a a result of the pandemic, but was actually a creation of our new decade, new approach uh, agreement, um, which um, uh, which helped restore the assembly in January twenty twenty. Is you know things like initiatives like the fiscal council um and again i note that your report does touch 
on, you know, the, the interviewees have high hopes for this. Uh, and I note the Fiscal Council uh, just recently published their first uh, their first report. Um, you know, and again, I, I, the, the, you know, Marie, if you can comment on this, there seems to be a hope that the Fiscal Council can almost be like our local Office for budget of uh, office for budgetary responsibility. Um, you know, so so what are we hoping, and what what have you detected um, uh, that people are hoping that bodies like the fiscal council um, uh, can achieve? And does Stormont need to spend the money it already gets better, or do we need a better conversation about revenue raising as we go into the next election? Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating, David. And um, I looked at the recent report that the Fiscal Council has published, which reflected on the comprehensive spending review outcome in Westminster and what that might mean for Northern Ireland. I think the most exciting thing for Northern Ireland in this context, as we sit here today, is the potential of getting a multi-year budget next year. And I think it's even more exciting, if I can remain optimistic for a second, if they can agree that budget before they go into Perda, before the next assembly election, because the dynamic of doing that is quite is quite important. You know, if they can agree that without understanding who's going to be minister, who's going to have what portfolios, then they could take a very joined up approach to that budget. You know, rather than a, a you know um, a self interested approach to that budget setting process, and that could be that could be really important and and provide really a good foundation for the next uh, the next assembly, the next executive, if they can get that in place. And I understand, and we understand from the conversations we had that that is they've they've brought through a draft agenda they want that uh, or so they've brought through a draft budget they're going to bring that budget out to consultation and get a final budget agreed by the end of march so i think if we're looking on the optimistic side of this that is that could be really important for northern ireland the role of the fiscal council is important and, and actually i think great credit is due to them on their recent report it's very clear around how how financing and public spending works in northern ireland but you do touch on an interesting conflict or dynamic that we have in northern ireland which is government here spent nine pounds and every 10 pounds spent in northern ireland but they only have powers to raise one pound in every 20 pounds. So there is a real um, there's a real challenge, which is probably something for the Fiscal Commission, which is the second of the, the bodies that's been established to think about around the fiscal powers of, of the local executive here in Northern Ireland. And, you know, we did talk to um, indeed ministers and, and public servants about this and there's a recognition at this point that there is not a consensus, a political consensus on revenue raising. There just isn't. But there is also a, a recognition that if an independent fiscal council was to make such recommendations and make such recommendations with evidence behind it, then it would force the political um, institution to think about those recommendations and to think very seriously about those recommendations. So. All the indications we got from from state of the state interviews in 2021 are that these are good for Northern Ireland. The Fiscal Council and the Fiscal Commission are good for Northern Ireland, and we should absolutely support them. And certainly, the ministers we talked to indicated that they would support in due course the recommendations that come from them. Brilliant. Okay, and Ed, obviously, you know. Um... This is a bit of a new beast, but you but you you've witnessed you know the impact that 
you know, uh, new creations, well, relatively new creations, such as, you know, the Office for Budgetary Responsibility have had uh, on on the fiscal debate in the UK. But also, interestingly, and Marie was touching on there about, you know, obviously the Fiscal Commission, which could recommend potentially new parts. Obviously, the SNP government has, in the past two years, started experimenting with their uh, tax raising powers that they've had for quite a while, but they've only recently started using them. So, so just if you could give a bit of a comment about what you about what you think this could mean for the for the economic and fiscal debate for Northern Ireland. Well, you know, I, I totally agree with Marie. I, I think the fiscal commission in particular could be hugely significant because it, it, if they get that right, what it's going to do is really surface the kind of choices available to the executive and it's going to let politicians and the public look some of those choices square in the face. And then it's over to the politicians to make some very complex difficult decisions, not decisions I would want to make in terms of across the piece, the revenue raising, how money uh, is spent and allocated, uh, the whole thing. And then, of course, it's up to the Assembly and the electorate to hold the executive to account on that. So I think it could be hugely significant. And these things are far better with some sunlight. You've called out the OBR the level of debate across the public finances uh, in, in the UK, in Westminster and Whitehall, is enormous, enormously richer for having the OBR. Okay, and um, are we, do you think that, uh, j- just, to get your, just to get your perspective on this, do you think that in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the revenue raising and in terms of some of the things there, did you did you pick up, and, and, if, uh, and if either of you want to comment on this, did, did you pick up much of an appetite, particularly amongst your business interviews and your, your more kind of civil service interviews? Did you pick up uh, much of an appetite coming in uh, for kind of those revenue raising powers and what some of those could potentially be? So, so, so if I picked up an appetite, it was for decisions to be bold and decisions to be sustainable and decisions to be made in the long term and in the public interest and not for things to be, you know, cans to be kicked down the road. That was the appetite I picked up. And then, you know, beyond that, I think it's up to a personal appetite, isn't it? A lot along a spectrum of, of how you feel about revenue raising and all that that piece. But yeah, the, the appetite I picked up was, was really for boldness. Yeah, I would agree. Ed. I mean, I think the, the only other point I'd add to that is collaboration a real appetite for collaboration across sectors in driving some of this transformation on outcomes we saw a glimmer of that in the last draft program for government where there was talk about collaboration across sectors to drive better outcomes for people we didn't really see the reality of it so i think getting a getting a new program for government and really seeing what what can be done in terms of collaboration between private sector community and voluntary sector and public sector i think is going to be important Okay, I'm going to apologise for this question in advance because it seems like you can't do any politics podcast uh, if without mentioning the B word or the P word as it's now become known in Northern Ireland. The protocol, Brexit, our relationship with the European Union vis-a-vis our relationship with the rest of the UK and of course your report doesn't uh, doesn't avoid it uh, either. Uh, you are, your interviewees were noting um, that both the public and private sectors were excited by the longer term possibilities for Northern Ireland if the protocol leaves it in a unique position as a bridge between the EU and the UK market. So I just want to ask, uh, Ed, I'll go for you first. What are the opportunities and the burdens, if there are uh, if there are there, uh, from the protocol? 
And I did note, by the way, um, and um, if the two of you could pick up on this as well, uh, the report references new industries and areas like green jobs. So I'm just wondering, you know, if the opportunities are there, you know, how can we secure these? I think all questions on Brexit are really for Maria, not not me, David. That, that's the way I see it. But I'll give I'll give it a go. Give it a go. So, go on. So so you know we we don't know right now where the, where the protocol's going to land. But what came across in the interviews in the people, both in the public and private sectors, is that people have become poised and focused on exploiting the opportunities for the benefit of Northern Ireland and are unapologetic about that. And I think that's a really encouraging attitude to here uh, on those opportunities and where they could be you know the green economy net zero green industry green technology came up time and time again and i think i pick up a sense that belfast and northern ireland more widely it, it it's got the skills the infrastructure the lifestyle possibilities to attract talent it's got the scale that means it can be fleet of foot it's got leaders in the public and private sector that have become very adept at play shaping and dealing with issues like driving um, inward investment so you know i think it's all to play for and that was really the sense that i picked up you know people have moved away from where they were five years ago thinking really and dwelling on the politics of brexit and in northern ireland for me they're really poised and focused on the opportunities okay marie your thoughts yeah, I absolutely agree with what Ed has said there. I think we, we as part of um, State of the State, you, you mentioned, David, we conducted a survey with Ipsos Mori. One of the uh, questions we asked in that survey was what you would want your region to be known for on the world stage. And we had a disproportionately higher number of people from Northern Ireland referencing that they wanted Northern Ireland to be known as a place to do business. So I think there is an, entre- an entrepreneurial spirit in Northern Ireland that is distinct and unique and we should absolutely uh, build and capitalize on that so you know the conversations we had around the protocol yes there was um certain interviewees who talked up the opportunity and then there was other interviewees who dwelled on the significant constitutional issues and economic issues that we have around the protocol particularly on east-west trade and i think there is recognition that even though we moved beyond the eu exit on the first of january the protocol has not been fully implemented in northern ireland and we've been moving from um grace period to grace period and if there was to be a full implementation of the protocol as it sits now that would be economically very challenging for east-west trade from Northern Ireland and and uh, from Northern Ireland to GB and vice versa. So I think there is a realistic view that there needs to be uh, some kind of adoption of the protocol in terms of east-west trade. But if that can be adopted um, in a way that is practical and is workable, then the, there is a, a, an absolutely an opportunity for Northern Ireland to have a foot in both the European market and the UK market. And I think, you know, some of some of our businesses have already moved on that opportunity and are already seizing that opportunity. And I think we, we would see more of that. Um, I think the most interesting for me, interesting thing for me as we sit here today on the protocol and Brexit is when we were conducting these interviews over the course of the summer, I really felt that by the time we would be coming to publish the State of the State report in late autumn, that things would have moved on drastically and actually what we would have to say would be out of date. And it surprised me actually in the last couple of weeks that actually what we heard and what we were saying 
hadn't really moved on at all, despite all the bluster we hear day and daily in the media and on the airwaves about this, you know, it's still pretty much reflective of the situation we find today. So we'll we'll have to, it feels that we'll have to wait another period of time to maybe um, see what comes of that. In terms of green growth, um, we did talk a lot about green growth in this year, and that was, I think, a very, a new dynamic, much more, it was much more of a conversation point this year than it has been in previous years. All of the people we talked to acknowledged it is a priority for Northern Ireland. I think Department for Economy has identified it as one of four priority sectors it wants to focus on over the next number of years. Hydrogen has been talked about and the opportunities perhaps in uh, along along our sea borders in Northern Ireland. And then the skills point that I had talked about as well and building those green skills. I think the challenge for, for green growth is going to be investment and policy around it you know we've currently two bills going through the assembly on this where are we going to get consensus on on our regional approach to net zero and what are our policy initiatives going to be and who owns and who's going to drive those policy initiatives and i think there is going to need to be an upfront investment in net zero that'll have to be fueled and and incentivized through public sector and is there really going to be the bandwidth financially and otherwise to do that with everything else that's going on yeah absolutely and you know and, and doing that from a from a devolved government too but it is good that we're actually we've managed to actually keep a discussion about you know the protocol in a in a mostly optimistic, um, you know, substantive um, policy um, uh, discussion, which doesn't often happen uh, in in Northern Ireland. But let's uh, but 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 let's take a look at, at another big issue. You know, and quite often, you know, our debate is, has really focused a lot on the protocol. Quite often, our debates are also very centred when it comes to public policy. When we're we tend to be very centred on health and i just noticed that uh, in your report um uh, you're noting that the, that the northern ireland public uh, see social care and benefits uh, benefits payments as bigger priorities than anywhere else in the uk they see policing as less uh, as less of a priority uh, than elsewhere um and i just wonder and i want to throw this um to ed um I just wonder, do you think that maybe the focus on, you know, issues like health is maybe hurting Northern Ireland and other policy areas? I mean, Marie just spelled out there, you know, some of the challenges there around green growth and, you know, economic development. I just wonder, um, uh, is is our focus on health um, uh, maybe hurting uh, the policy debate in other ways? I don't necessarily think it's hurting the, the policy debate in other ways, but there's only so much cash to go around in the public sector. And health systems tend to have unquenchable thirsts. And I don't think across the UK we're very good at defining the limits of what our public health system can provide. And I think we've got some way to go as well on the whole preventative dimension, the demand management dimension, the public health dimension, getting out and talking to people about big issues like obesity and about diabetes, you know, in the same way that that um, that government and the wider public sector has tackled things like smoking. I think there's still a long way to go before we manage demand down. So I don't necessarily think it's 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 hurting the debate, but health spending is unquenchable. Okay, and uh, Marie, what's your thing? I mean, there are lots of people in the education sector. Po- point I mean, we've just talked about there about uh, jobs and skills. Yet our education budget is is flatlining in Northern Ireland. You know, um, I just wonder in terms of the focus of the policy debate, have we have we got that right? 
I totally agree with everything Ed said there in relation to health. I think if you look at the trajectory of health spend in Northern Ireland, we're poised to have to spend 80% of the block grant on health if we don't transform what we do. And I think there is a realisation and an acceptance that in order to transform, we're going to have to have a period of dual running and dual funding. And so there is going to be short term pain financially to get us onto the right um, health trajectory and allow that to be financially sustainable in the long term. I, I do, and we did hear from some of our public sector leaders that there is concerns about what that will mean for funding across other departments and other sectors. And I think we'll see that playing out in the budget. Yeah, okay. And obviously, um, you know, you, 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 both of you have referenced this. Um, you know, there are a lot of good initiatives out there, a lot of good ideas, a lot of good uh, policy proposals, but, you know, the ability to actually uh, deliver those uh, falls to the executive, and yet your research has found. Again, I hope I don't want to end on a on a negative note, but we have to make mention of it. Is that the Northern Ireland executive has the lowest confidence levels of any uh, of any of the governmental institutions in the UK? So, um, Ed, I'll kick off with you here on this. What can the executive do? Let's 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 keep it. Let's keep it constructive. What could the executive potentially do as we go into the next election and we start afresh again from May? What could the executive do to rebuild confidence? Yeah. Okay. So I I wasn't really surprised by that finding that that trust and confidence in Northern Ireland is lower than with the other administrations and with the UK government. And I think the public in Northern Ireland is still reeling from, what was it, 590 days without an executive? Now, that is going to take a, take a toll that is going to play out in survey results like this one. So I wasn't at all surprised um, to find that result. What can they do to build confidence? Well, you've said uh, about the Assembly elections next year, David, and I think elections at their best can really draw a line under the past and help people move on. And if that election is a good election, and I would define that as one with constructive, positive debate rather than kind of tawdry partisan debate, I think that will be even more efficient and effective at drawing a line under that extended absence that the executive had. Um, and I think some of the other things that, that could that could help shift the dial on trust is some stability as well. I mean, when the Northern Ireland Protocol sorted, when we start to feel like we're really in a post-Brexit era, we're really up and running, I think that will really help. And then I think as well, we've talked about the Fiscal Commission. If the executive starts to make those difficult choices that the public instinctively know it needs to make, then I think people will respect that and I think trust will be built from that point. Okay, you're ever the optimist. Always, David. About a substantive Always. policy election <laughs> for five weeks uh, during, during April and May. I will, I will come back to you at the end of May and we'll see whether that happens. Uh, Marie, what can the executive do to, re to, to build up that confidence? Yeah, well, well, we'll have to keep it positive, David, won't we? So um, I think agreeing uh, a multi-annual budget to giving us some long-term financial stability around some of these policy initiatives, acting on the numerous um, strategies and recommendations that exist, particularly around health transformation, agreeing uh, an outcomes-based programme for government and implementing that programme for government, 
and I suppose um, very fundamentally coming back after the next election and forming a government in Northern Ireland because I think we heard there is some debate over whether indeed we will even get to that place. So um, there is uncertainty uh, and there will be uncertain times ahead but I really hope that we can get a positive outcome this time next year. Yeah. Well, uh, hope springs eternal, and you know what we, we we do tend to pull things out of the fire in Northern Ireland at the very last minute. Um, Ed, I just want one last question for you, if we can end on a pause. Was there anything in the report? Obviously, this is the problem for anyone who's ever written reports; they have to have a start, a middle, and an end, and a word length. I just wonder: was there anything that that you would love to have got in that you didn't get in, um, and that you could maybe tell us about now? Ooh. It, that's a killer question. So, I mean, a lot in a lot of the interviews, people talk about the politics, and 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 then it boils down to a lot of individual views and so, and some fairly uh, some fairly extreme views at that. So there's pl- there's plenty of political comment that we didn't really uh, we we didn't really have the bandwidth to include. And then also there's some good stuff as well about the future of work and hybrid working, remote working. And the one that sticks into my head was somebody really senior in the NHS uh, who, who said, you know, I do my ironing during Teams calls. That's why I don't have the camera on. I think that was probably one of my favourite moments. Brilliant. OK, well, that's uh, that, that's sure we've all been there as well. Folks, can I thank you very much for giving us your insights? Uh, well done and congratulations again on a really substantive report. Again, it's been something we've been covering on Slugger for the past few years. So congratulations to yourselves at Deloitte and also Reform, who I know help you out with this report as well. So the State of the State report, uh, you can read that online. You can click the link uh, below this podcast uh, here on the Slugger O'Toole website. Uh, Marie Doyle and Ed Ross, thank you very much for your thoughts and contributions today. Brilliant. Thanks, David. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please hit the subscribe button so you can keep up to date with all future episodes.